Hello and welcome to Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patrizio and today we're talking about the readings for the first Sunday in Lent, March 1st, 2020. Our gospel today is the story of Jesus' temptation in the desert. There he submits to a threefold temptation which corresponds to that of Adam and Eve in the garden and the threefold concupiscence listed in 1 John 2.16. We'll discuss the nature of Satan's temptation and the manner in which his temptations may have been attractive. Finally, we'll discuss how Jesus takes on the role of the new Israel and the new David by undoing the sins of Israel and the sins of Solomon. Welcome back. It's Lent. And it's the first Sunday of Lent, at least it's the first Sunday of Lent that we are discussing today. Um, First off, uh, welcome to any new listeners. I know uh, several of you heeded my requests uh, a couple episodes back uh, to share the podcast, so I'm really grateful for that. We have had some new lesson- listeners, so welcome to the new listeners. And for the first time, because I can see some of the analytics of um, where people are listening, when they're listening, etc. So for the first time since we launched the podcast, um, downloads have... Uh, Downloads on Apple Podcasts have surpassed the downloads on the uh, our Sunday Dive website. So what that shows me to to cut through to the chase for you is that lots of you are subscribing, uh, especially on Apple Podcasts, and I'm really grateful for that. So if you haven't subscribed yet, and you have an iPhone or really any kind of phone, because even if you don't have an iPhone, so you don't have access to Apple Podcasts, you can use um, Google Podcasts, the app Google Podcasts, if you have an Android phone, or if you have another kind of phone that just doesn't support either of those, you can use Stitcher, okay? And then you can um, subscribe, which means these episodes will be automatically downloaded to your phone when new ones drop, and you'll be ready wherever you are in the car or out and about, or even just at home to listen to new episodes. So all in sum, thank you to everybody who is listening and um, sharing the podcast with um, new people. So uh, we are talking about the readings for the first Sunday of Lent, and our gospel is from Matthew. It's from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. This is the story of Jesus's temptation in the desert. And you might actually recall that we um, skipped over this when we were systematically reading through Matthew, but it's great because we get it now. And the church gives it to us because it fits in perfectly with the season of Lent. Um, and we kind of gave you a little bit of a teaser um, during our bonus episode for Ash Wednesday. And uh, we'll basically spend the episode connecting um, the the threefold concupiscence that we talked about um, in the bonus episode from 1 John 2.16. If you have no idea what I'm talking about or you didn't listen to the Ash Wednesday episode, that's okay because um, our readings uh, actually give us again um, some of what we talked about last time. So we'll touch on that as well. But let's begin by reading the gospel together again. It's Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city 
and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. All right, again, Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, reading um, from the New Revised Standard Version, Catholic edition. So again, especially if you're a new listener, this might sound a little different from what you heard or will hear at Mass. That's because we read from the New American Bible. Um, I read from the RSV because it has a more literal, literal translation of the ancient languages, Um, but also because it has a more lenient (laughs) copyright. So in case anybody thinks my podcast is so amazing that they need to start checking the copyright, um, RSV, New Revised Standard Version, is a little bit uh, safer for me permissions-wise. Okay, so I, I keep referencing our Ash Wednesday episode and uh, how our gospel today links up really well with the readings from Ash Wednesday and everything that we talked about at Ash Wednesday. And I mentioned that uh, we we get some of that again here in our readings today. So for example, um, the church does a great job of, of cueing us once more again back to what we talked about for Ash Wednesday by giving us for our first reading Genesis 2, 7 through 9, and then three, one through seven. Okay. And particularly in Genesis chapter three, uh, what we get is the story of the fall. Okay. And in the story of the fall, we get an important detail that the writer of Genesis gives us when discussing the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay. So if you're a careful reader of the text, we're told that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was forbidden, it contained, it, it had the forbidden fruit, right? It has three characteristics. We're told that it's good for food, that it is a delight to the eyes, and that it is desirable to make one wise, okay? And what we did in the bonus episode for Ash Wednesday is link those three characteristics. If we jumped all the way, so we're in the beginning of the Bible at the book of Genesis, right? We jump uh, almost to the end, to 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, we get uh, John telling us that all that is in the world, and again here, we don't mean like anything in the world. We mean worldly things. That's what John is talking about. So he says all that is in the world, i.e. all worldly things are either lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, or pride of life, okay? And I said that as we move through scripture and salvation history, we're going to see the recurrence of this, uh, what's called threefold concupiscence as outlined in first John two sixteen, And concupiscence is a big word for a tendency towards sin. Okay. 
So for John, we have tendency towards sin. We're born with this because of original sin. And uh, we have a tendency towards uh, three kinds of sins. Or in a, another way of putting it is that all of our sins can almost be categorized in three sorts of ways. They're either lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, or pride of life. And what's fascinating is that when you go back to the first sin, that is in our first reading at Genesis chapter three, we indeed see this, this threefold concupiscence. Adam and Eve see that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is good for food. It's a delight to the eyes and it's desirable to make one wise. Each of those corresponding to the threefold concupiscence. So what is good for food is lust of the flesh. What is a delight to the eyes is lust of the eyes. And what is desirable to make one wise is pride of life. Okay. And so the church gives us this reading from Genesis uh, 3 in order to cue us into that. And I said the fascinating thing because I noted that uh, as we move through scripture and move through salvation history, we're going to see the threefold concupiscence crop up again. And in, the, in our last episode for Ash Wednesday, I said, little teaser here, Jesus is going to be tempted in the desert and he's going to be tempted in three ways. And each of the three temptations of our Lord correspond to one of the threefold concupiscences, okay? So let's go ahead and just comb through the uh, temptation of Jesus in the desert. It's absolutely fascinating if you can see kind of the literary structure that Matthew is giving to it, and we can see what Satan is doing here in tempting our Lord, okay? So three temptations, the first temptation... Uh, Satan says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Okay. Now this is a, a, a real temptation for our Lord because we're told he's out in the desert. He's been out in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. And I love how the RSV translates um, this. He's, it says he was famished. Okay. Some other translations just say he was hungry. But you, we can imagine not eating 40 days and 40 nights, just how hungry our Lord is. So he's hungry. And Satan, understanding this, tempts him, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But there's something else as well kind of hidden in the temptation. And hidden, I say so, because I think it's hidden for us. For our Lord, it would not have been hidden at all. And for Satan, it's very intentional. Satan says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So there's something in here that by, if, by and if Jesus resists the temptation that Satan is giving, not only is he going to have to continue in hunger, but there's a sense that Satan seems to be taunting him like, Maybe I won't believe that you're the son of God unless you use some of your powers to show me that you're the son of God. Now, this is ludicrous because Satan knows Jesus is the son of God. Jesus knows Satan knows that he is the son of God. But there's still a little bit of a... Ah, Satan is 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 pricking... Uh, it, I want to say pricking our Lord's pride, but that, that's not even correct because our Lord has no pride. But we can see how for any of us, if Satan wages a similar temptation where our identity is called into question, we're even more tempted 
to fall into the temptation because it's not just our hunger on the line, right? It's our ego. It's our very self. It's our image. It's our identity. Okay. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. The other aspect of this temptation that's fascinating is that essentially what Satan is tempting Jesus to do is to use his divinity for his own personal comfort. Okay. And when we look at this, and we're going to continue to do this, but in this first temptation, when we start already comparing it with the temptation of Adam and Eve and the fall, we see just fascinating reversals taking place from the very beginning. Okay. Now, uh, Adam and Eve, we have to remember that God gave them all these other trees and all these other fruits that they could eat from. So there's no reason for Adam and Eve to need to eat of the forbidden fruit. And yet there's a sense of, I want, I want my own will, but also I want my own comfort. Okay. And so I'm going to go against God's wishes and even against myself in many ways. I'm going to go against myself. Because God has said, if you eat of it, you will die. The day that you eat of it, you will die. And so in disregard for their own well-being, Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, all right? To try to, to take divinity in a manner of speaking. I think we touched on this in the, in the last episode that, that Satan tells them in contradiction to God's warning that when you eat of it, you will you will die. Satan says, not only will you not die, but your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And so Adam and Eve take of the fruit and they eat in a desire to be like God. And what's fascinating here is that Jesus resists the temptation of Satan, this first temptation of Satan, which in part is a temptation to use his divinity and his powers merely for his own comfort. Okay to twist the purpose of divinity in a way. In other words, Jesus's powers are not for his own comfort. They're for others. He is perfect self-gift, not only in his relationship with his father in the Trinity, but in his giving of himself to us as humans. And so for our Lord, his identity is for us. His powers are for us or more properly speaking, so that we include in a way the Trinity, his, his divinity and his powers, they are for love. And so they'll always be submitted to the will of the father, right? Jesus never does his own will. He only does the will of the father. Okay. And we see this in our Lord's response to Satan at verse four, it says that Jesus answered him, answered Satan, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There's two ways of living. One is a more base way of living, and one is a truer way of living, if you will. One is just a mere physical life, and the other is totality of life, which includes spiritual life, right? Which is actually a more almost a more real way of living in a way. 
I don't want to introduce like um, uh, a sort of uh, dichotomy between the body and the soul so that we, we, uh, we feel that I'm putting down the body and I'm putting down physical life. But what is physical life if we do not have spiritual life is really what I'm trying to get at here. And so bread, food, it feeds the physical life, but what feeds the spiritual life and that spiritual life, which really encompasses all of life, every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we can find that maybe that phrase a little bit perplexing, like what is Jesus actually getting at here? And by the way, this is a quote from scripture. We'll touch on that in a second. What is Jesus getting at when he says, um, you live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What is this every word that comes from the mouth of God? For the Jewish people, the word that comes from the mouth of the God, uh, the, the word that comes from the mouth of God is Torah. It's law. And so one lives by the law. The mean, the, the manner by which you have life is 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 through the law, is in the law, is by obedience to the law. Now, this can lead into a brief discussion on the moral life, because sometimes when we look at moral laws, we tend to think of them as just God putting up arbitrary fences around things in our life, right? Or arbitrary fences around us to prevent us from getting or doing particular things in life. But what the moral life really is, is God, who is our creator, who is our maker, telling us what it means to be alive, what it means to fulfill our purpose. Because to sin is to, is to not fulfill our purpose, is to not do that for which we were created. And so the moral life is the means by which we live. Because the moral life, the law, the Torah, is God's sort of user manual for us. I don't always like to use that uh, imagery because I think it's, it, it doesn't, it doesn't do, do justice to the full richness of God's law. But at the same time, it, it hints at kind of a philosophical idea, which is that as things tell us, tell us is like a technical term in philosophy, which means its end or purpose, a thing's telos is given to it by its creator. So you, you are in, uh, you're in the, the early 1900s and you're in Dayton, Ohio at, uh, at, uh, a cycle shop owned by the Wright brothers and they're building something. What is that? What are they building? Well, it's not really obvious. Maybe for us, when we look at the, the right flyer now, and we know generally what airplanes look like, maybe it looks like an airplane to us, and maybe we can uh, ascertain that it's an airplane, and that an airplane flies through the sky. But for somebody in the early 1900s, seeing the Wright brothers build what they were building, to understand what the purpose of that object, that thing the right flyer, to understand what the purpose of it was, what its telos was, you had to ask the people making it. You had to ask Orville and Wilbur, what is that? They Only they can tell you. And not only that, but only they could tell you if the thing was actually fulfilling its telos, if it was actually fulfilling its end. So 
you know, someone could walk in and say, what is that? What are, what are you building? And they could say, we're building an airplane. And you could say to them, well, how, how do you know what it's supposed to do? Or what should I, what, what will it do when it's, when it's actually fulfilling its end? You know, if they take off with the right flyer and it immediately nosedives into the ground, it hasn't fulfilled its end. But when it flies for several seconds on Kitty Hawk, there, there it has fulfilled its end. And that, that is a glorious end, right? I really love airplanes, so <laughs> I can wax poetic about it a little bit. But there's something beautiful in an airplane that works correctly. It's majestic. It's amazing. It, it has a use, right? Airplanes take us to the people that we love and the things that we enjoy. Do we do that? Do we willingly submit to our creator's desires for us? And do we heed his words, his Torah, his law, which tells us what our purpose is and when we are actually fulfilling our purpose? Do we do that? Okay. Food for thought in this time of Lent. Food for thought, um, sources of meditation. Let's move on to the second temptation. Verse five, then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. But Jesus said to him again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay. The devil takes him to the holy city. Little trivia for you here. What do you think is the holy city? give you a couple seconds to think about it. What do you think is the holy city? For for a Jew reading this, it would have been obvious. It would have been immediate where uh, uh immediately known and understood where the devil had taken Jesus and he had taken him to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the holy city, okay? He takes him to Jerusalem and places him on the pinnacle of the temple. Okay? So first of all, the temple is the center of Jerusalem. Some people have even said that Jerusalem is not really a city. Jerusalem is a, a temple with a city built around it. Okay. The temple was massive, massive, multiple football, football fields, wide, long. Okay. The, the, the square mileage that it covered was massive. It was huge. And it was, it was built, um, the, the temple mount had been extended by King Herod. And it, because it was extended, it had these massive retaining walls so that if you walked up to the entrance to the temple, especially on the south side, which was kind of like the main entrance to the temple for the common person, if you walked up to the temple on the south side, you're confronted with these huge walls that are the side of the temple, okay? And so all along the top of these retaining walls was a parapet, Okay like a, the air, an area you could walk along. And um, there's some debate about what, where the pinnacle of the temple was. Um, for a long time, I subscribed to the idea that the pinnacle of the temple here referenced was actually the uh, southeast corner of the temple. 
precisely because the southeast corner has the has the highest wall. Um, not because like the the wall itself is higher, but because the valley below is lower. So it has actually the largest kind of drop off because the Kidron Valley, which is directly below it, is quite low. I think the the height is about 450 feet, okay? So if what Satan is tempting Jesus to do is to throw himself down, many scholars believe, well, that makes a lot of sense that he would take him to the southeast corner because that has a 450-foot drop. Other scholars, though, think it's the southwest corner of the temple. The reason being, and, and I of late have found this a little bit more compelling. Again, we don't know. This is all conjecture. But I find it compelling um, considering um, Jesus or Satan's temptation to Jesus. So on the southwest corner, on the other hand, you have a slightly smaller drop off, not, not by much though. It would still be a very long, hard fall. But in contrast to the southeast corner of the temple, on the southwest corner of the temple, you have a marketplace below. And not only that, but you have a view of... Um, almost all of Jerusalem itself, okay? Because the city that's built around the temple, if you want to refer to Jerusalem that way, is primarily on the uh, west side, okay? There's actually no city on the on the east side of, of Jerusalem, all right? There's the, the, the Mount of Olives, but that doesn't have Jerusalem proper, okay? So if Satan took Jesus to the southwest corner, Jesus would have a view of the marketplace below, which would have been very busy with people preparing to enter the temple or just buying goods. And he would have had a view of a large portion of Jerusalem. Now, was this for Jesus's benefit or someone else's? The benefit would have been for others, not for Jesus. It wasn't like, oh, we'll give our Lord a great view, right? Why would this have been for the benefit of others? Well, again, look to the temptation itself. Satan says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. In other words, here we are. We're in bustling Jerusalem. We're at the top of the temple. We're, uh, if you were to jump off and miraculously by, be saved by angels, hundreds of people would see it. It would be a spectacle. And you would prove to the people that you are, in fact, the son of God in many ways. Again, because Satan prefaces his temptation with, if you are the son of God. In other words, prove it. Prove it not only to me, but prove it to the people, which is in a way what Jesus wants to do, right? Prove it is a little bit strong of a word, but every time our Lord, quote unquote, proves to someone that he is the son of God, he, he, he is able to save them. Let me, let me put it another way. If someone does not believe Jesus is the son of God, Jesus cannot work in them and he cannot save them. And so if he takes Satan up on his temptation and throws himself off the, the southwest corner of the temple in front of all these people and is saved by the angels, is caught by the angels, perhaps then people will listen to him. Perhaps then people will follow him. Perhaps then people will be saved by him, which is precisely what our Lord came to do, right? Um, 
I'm going to note here, I'm kind of backing up just a little bit. I said um, that the, the f- in the first temptation, Jesus responds with scripture. Okay. Um, Deuteronomy 8, 3. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. In the second temptation, Jesus also responds with scripture. Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But again, here, just a little fascinating kind of tidbit here. So Jesus, or Satan tempts Jesus the first time, Jesus responds with scripture. Satan tempts Jesus the second time, and Satan himself uses scripture in the temptation. This is really fascinating. So Satan actually quotes Psalm 91. That's what he's quoting here when he says, it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. It's fascinating. So Satan is twisting the words of God in scripture. See, Satan has no problem quoting scripture. (laughs) Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind when you think through the ways that Satan tempts us and what God really calls us to, faithfulness. People will find scripture to fit their own desires. Even Satan found scripture to fit his own desires. How do we keep from doing this? By staying close to the church, because it's the church through the ministry of St. Peter and the bishops, the successors to the apostles, who preserve the Torah, who preserve God's law, and keep it safe from abuse by Satan, right? He can take even scripture and twist it to his own desires, as we see here in the second temptation, okay? So again, the first temptation, turning stones to bread, this corresponds in the threefold concupiscence to the temptation of lust of the flesh, quite obviously, right? And to the the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden, that uh, the fruit was good for food, lust of the flesh, good for food. Jesus is undoing this first temptation by resisting his own first temptation in the desert. Same thing with his second temptation. Does it fit with the threefold concupiscence? Indeed, it does. The second of the threefold concupiscences, lust of the eyes. Jesus is being tempted to make of himself a spectacle, lust of the eyes, and he resists it by quoting scripture. Deuteronomy 6, 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so finally, a third time, Jesus is tempted by Satan. Tells us that verse eight, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This is a fascinating temptation, a fascinating temptation. First of all, does Jesus quote scripture again? Indeed, he does, okay? Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.13, the Lord your God shall you worship and him alone shall you serve. Let's let's unpack this temptation because for the longest time, 
I would read through the temptation narrative and I would be perplexed by it. Maybe you are too, because I would, I would hear the first temptation and I would think valid temptation. Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days or 40 nights, tempt him to turn stones to bread. And mind you, he's out in the desert and the Judean desert is not like the Sahara desert or something that we, we imagine having lots of sand. Sure. It has sands, but it has lots of rocks. The Judean desert is rocky. So Jesus would have had lots of stones to turn bread into. So valid temptation in my mind, right? Turning stones to bread when he hasn't eaten in 40 days or 40 nights. The, uh, the second temptation, throw yourself down so that the angels can catch you. All right. I mean, a little weird, but when you kind of put it in your context and you understand that Jesus is in, in Jerusalem, he's on the top of the temple, there's many people around and that what would have been perceived by those who might have observed such a thing is that this is perhaps the Messiah or this is actually the son of God. And Jesus would have gained followers and respect, okay? But the third temptation, the third temptation is bold. It's so bold as to be perplexing. Because what Satan does is tempt the Son of God, God himself, to bow down and worship him. To bow down and worship one of his creatures. What is a temptation? How, how in the world is this a temptation? To understand the power of this last temptation and to understand how, in fact, this last temptation would have been in a way the most tempting. We have to look at what God or what, excuse me, what the devil promises to Jesus. The devil took him to a very high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. If you will fall down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. That is the key to this temptation. The promise that Satan would hand over the kingdoms of the world to Jesus. How is this so? What did Jesus come to do? Jesus came to liberate all the kingdoms of the world, all the peoples of the world from the oppression of sin and Satan. Jesus came to take back from Satan all the kingdoms of the world, all the people of the world. And so what Satan is saying to Jesus is all you have to do All you have to do is fall down and worship me and I will give you everything you want. In the last episode, we touched on the fact that man cannot choose evil for its own sake. He always chooses a good. And Jesus' heart would have been burning at this idea because he is full, his heart is full of such immense love for us. And, and what is Satan offering him? Us. We can, even, we can even think about it in a personal manner, which can make it all the more powerful. But again, food for meditation here. Think about it from a personal perspective. Satan, of course, promises Jesus all the, all the kingdoms of the world. But th- this can sometimes kind of uh, 
feel somewhat impersonal. Like perhaps what Satan is tempting Jesus to is like world domination. No, this is not what Satan is tempting Jesus to. Satan is tempting Jesus to fall down and worship him in order to ransom us. It would be like, just to kind of, just to kind of give you an image to maybe understand the anguish in our Lord's heart and perhaps under, understand how maybe there was a hint of desire in our Lord. I mean, this is a temptation for Jesus. Matthew is clear about this. And so Jesus resisted the temptation completely, never once giving into it. And yet there's something about it that is attractive to our Lord. We have to give that. And so it would, it would be like somebody threatening somebody that you love and saying, if you would just do this, they'll live. I'll give them to you, right? Who, who is, who is in this, in the balance here, if you will? It's us, me, me. Bow down and worship me and I will give you, insert your own name. We can see the immense love our Lord has for us by the fact that this indeed is a temptation for Jesus. But how does Jesus respond? He responds emphatically, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And we're told at verse 11, the final verse of our gospel, then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. We can understand more of the temptation when we evaluate Jesus' response, Jesus' response in the context of scripture. What, what Satan was offering Jesus was not just all the kingdoms of the world, that, that is indeed what he was offering, but he was also offering Jesus the opportunity to forego all of his suffering leading up to his passion, during his passion, during the cross, his very death. Satan is offering Jesus an opportunity to forgo that. And I said, we can understand this by contextualizing Jesus's response to Satan's temptation, because it might ring a bell for you because there's another time in the scriptures where Jesus uses words that are almost just as strong. It's, at, it's also in Matthew, Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And it says, Peter took him and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. In other words, I know you don't want me to suffer, but I need to. 
I need to do this. And not only, well, I feel like we, I feel like these, these, these two phrases, they're chock full of food for meditation because I feel like we see Jesus's humanity on display in such a beautiful way because it's the strength of his humanity. But nevertheless, it's, it's definitely his humanity. He's saying, I have to do this and I need you to be on board. I need you to not suggest that I don't. Because from, from the earliest years of his ministry, and I think even while he was spending all those years in his hidden life in Nazareth, working in the carpenter shop, our Lord had a lot of time to think, right? If you've ever worked with wood or just done kind of crafty things, you know, you get time to think. That's one of the attractive things about doing that. You get time to think. Jesus had a lot of time to think, and he was probably thinking about his passion at times. And he would have taken, from a human perspective, he would have enjoyed an opportunity to forgo that immense suffering that in his omniscience, because of his divinity, he had a view of all throughout his life. In his true humanity, Jesus would have liked to forgo that. And yet in his humanity, on display in all its strength, both at Matthew 4 in our gospel and in Matthew 16, he speaks emphatically, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For in speaking so, this is what he's saying, in speaking so you are not on the side of God, but on the side of men. I must do this. Jesus must do this because it's the only proper way to call us back to himself. It's the only proper way to redeem us. You you can't worship Satan, right? You can't worship Satan. And yet what Satan is offering Jesus is precisely our liberation, what God wants from the beginning. And what's fascinating, let's relate this to the idea of the moral life and our own moral life. Jesus understands that the ends don't justify the means. The ends don't justify the means. That the only proper way to redeem us is by remaining faithful to the will of the Father. This is Jesus. Jesus understands that the only way to properly redeem us is to remain faithful to the will of the Father. Why? Because it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. There are so many times in the moral life when we find ways to nuance the ends, so that it justifies the means. But the ends can never justify the means. And the only thing that God requires of us, and the only thing we can do to have proper life, is to follow God's law, even for the Son of God. Even for the Son of God. The law was most important. And so in his temptation, Jesus begins to undo the sin of all of humanity. He's going to completely undo it on the cross, right? But we can see that in his temptation, he chooses the cross in a really real way. And so he begins undoing that. But we also see the beauty in the fact that it's a threefold temptation because 
in the threefold temptation of Jesus, like we talked about, resisting the lust of the flesh, resisting the lust of the eyes, and then it's this third temptation, resisting pride of life. Jesus begins to undo our sinfulness. He does this in um, two ways, okay? He takes on kind of he takes on kind of two roles, or I suppose we could even say three, because as we've already been talking about, Jesus takes on in a way the the temptation of Adam and Eve and the role of the first man, and he undoes that. He's successful. But he takes on also the role of Israel and the role of the Davidic king. Okay, let me unpack this for you for a few minutes. So there's the threefold concupiscence, 1 John 2, 16, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. There's uh, Genesis 3, 6, good for food and delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. Now, if we move towards in scripture, if we're kind of calming through scripture to pull out the threefold concupiscence, when we get to Exodus, we find that Israel experiences three temptations and three falls, okay? So at Exodus 16, 3, Israel complains of hunger. Um, we're told that um, they're six weeks out of Egypt, okay? So it says uh, at Exodus uh, 16, verse 1, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, this is six weeks later, the whole congregation of the people of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness and said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. This is, this is ungratitude, but this is, this verges on blasphemy in a way, in my opinion. Would that we had remained slaves in Egypt. Six weeks after God releases them from oppression in Egypt, the people of Israel are complaining of their hunger to the point of saying, I wish God had not even saved me. Giving in to lust of the flesh. If we move forward into the, ca- the account in Exodus, just to the next chapter, at Exodus 17, verse 7, if they were complaining of hunger, now they're complaining of thirst. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? How does this relate to the threefold concupiscence? Well, the text tells us that in complaining of thirst and actually requiring of Moses that he provide for them drink, that the people put the Lord to the test. Moses says to them, why do you put the Lord to the proof? That's how the RSV translates it. Why do you put to the, the Lord to the test? And then at the end at verse seven, it says, um, God, it says essentially God found fault with the children of Israel because, and here I'm beginning a direct uh, quote, because they put the Lord to the proof by saying, is the Lord among us or not? In other words, whether or not the people believed that God was with them, present with them, guiding them, was going to be contingent on whether he provided them water. Lust of the eyes, testing God. And we can see how this relates to Jesus' temptation. Throw yourself down from the, the pinnacle of the temple and see if the angels catch you, right? If we move, if we continue moving through in Exodus, uh, we have to go a little bit farther. Exodus 32, 
verses one through six. This is one of the more famous sins of Israel, and it's the worst sin. It's the sin of the golden calf. Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the law. The people grow bored of waiting for him. They go to Aaron and they say to him, build us a calf that we might worship. And so Aaron does that. He builds them a golden calf. They pick up the calf and they, they show it before the people. They hold it up and say, behold, the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That is ludicrous. God brought them out of the land of Egypt, the living God. And they take this golden calf and they hold it up and they say, behold, the God who brought you, the, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Idolatry. Idolatry. And this is exactly what Satan tempts Jesus to. And this is why Jesus responds to Satan in the way he does. Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. He quotes the command against idolatry, which is from Deuteronomy, okay? And you notice when I went through the scripture that Jesus quotes in all three of those, he quotes Deuteronomy, which contains the law given to Israel, the law that Israel could not keep, but Jesus as the new Israel, Jesus will keep the law, okay? And we can contextualize this even more and remind ourselves that right before Jesus is tempted in the desert, he's been baptized, okay? And we said in talking about Jesus's baptism, we said that his baptism um, signals a new exodus. Why? Because Israel entered into the promised land by crossing over the Jordan River. And so when Jesus enters into the Jordan, he signals a new exodus and he takes on himself the role the corporate kind of role, like one person um, symbolizing a whole group. He takes on the kind of corporate role of a new Israel. But lastly, I want to show you the, another cool thing. There's so many cool things we can talk about. I want to show you how Jesus is taking on the role of the new son of David. Okay. So if we go to first Kings two verses, verse three, uh, we're told that, uh, David is on his deathbed and he's preparing to hand over the kingdom to his son, Solomon. And he gives Solomon some advice, some instruction. And his advice, his instruction is very simple. He says, keep the law of Moses. Okay. Now we could see how this would be advice and instruction, but if you're um, astute, you would understand that David is referring to a specific part of the law of Moses, because in the law of Moses, specifically at uh, Deuteronomy 17, Moses gives laws for the future king of Israel. Okay. And so at Deuteronomy 17 verses 16 through 17, he gives three simple laws for the future king of Israel. The future king of Israel shall not multiply wives. He shall not multiply horses and he shall not multiply gold right? Unfortunately, we don't have to read much further to get to three details in scripture that are problematic. First Kings 10 and 11. So at first Kings 10 verse 14, we're told the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Jump down to verse 26 at first Kings 10. Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and in Jerusalem. And then jump down to chapter 11, verse 1 through 3. 
King Solomon loved many foreign women. Even though the Lord, paraphrasing here, even though the Lord said of foreign women, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall you, neither shall they with you, excuse me. For, according to the Lord, they will turn away your heart after their gods. But nonetheless, at verse 3, Solomon had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart, and we're told that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, so that at the end of his life, Solomon commits idolatry. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. But Jesus, coming on the scene, having gone down to the Jordan River and been baptized by John the Baptist, who is both a priest and a prophet, just like Solomon went to the Gihon Spring and was anointed, he was anointed king by a priest and a prophet. He then goes up into the desert and there he takes on the threefold temptation of Satan, which corresponds directly to the threefold temptation of Solomon and to the threefold Mosaic law for the future king of Israel. And where Solomon failed, Jesus succeeds. And how does Jesus succeed? By remaining faithful, 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 faithful to the law, to the will of his father to go to Jerusalem, right? I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but as we read through uh, the gospel for Lent, we're going to see that uh, Jesus is going to, uh, he's going to set his face towards Jerusalem and he's going to journey towards Jerusalem and he's not going to be turned away from Jerusalem because he must go to Jerusalem because in Jerusalem, he will have his victory. He will redeem us and he will fulfill the will of his father and completely fulfill the law. And in doing, he will provide us with the grace to become another Christ and to follow him down the same path of complete and utter faithfulness to God, no matter what it requires of us, no matter if it requires suffering. Keep this in mind as you travel through your own journey of 40 days this Lent, and you should have your own uh, physical and spiritual discomforts. Remember that Lent is pointed towards further conforming ourselves to Christ, which is conforming ourselves to the will of the Father. Thanks so much for listening.